This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. And I want to get right into this uh, thing with uh, Donald Trump and Paul Manafort and a number of other folks now. Uh, these are becoming household names, of course, as this uh, tale starts to unwind in Washington. And this, of course, is all to do with the special investigator, Robert Mueller, and the work that he has been doing uh, probing the possibility of a Russian connection in the U.S. presidential election last year. Manafort and his associate uh, were indicted on 12 counts yesterday. But uh, later in the day, the story that seemed to almost supersede that was uh, involving a an aide, we're told a volunteer, although I think there's a little more to it than that, by the name of George Papadopoulos, uh, who was uh, convicted, as a matter of fact, of lying to the FBI. Joining us to talk about this uh, tangled mess, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, who has been following the story. Laura, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. And to your point off the top, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, right? <laughs> Trying to untangle this. It's, uh, Mueller's got a full team of the top investigators in all kinds of important areas uh, working on this. And yesterday was a real turning point. We got to see some of Mueller's strategy, and we got to see just how broad and deep and possibly damaging this whole investigation is going to be for the Trump administration. Well, when the word leaked out late last week that uh, that Mueller was going to come down with indictments on Monday morning, I think the speculation was was pretty much that Manafort was going to be at least one of those people that was involved in that, and and we're told now that the uh, the Trump White House actually started to prepare for that with their talking points. I don't think they saw Papadopoulos coming though. No, and you can tell that I think from reports, but also from the Twitter feed, which is the official voice really of the Trump administration, Trump's Twitter feed. And so what we saw happening on Friday was this big oh here come the here come the indictments and a lot of people were getting excited about it. I, I for one was holding back my expectations because sometimes these things are overhyped. But the fact that we knew that there had been an early morning raid of Manafort's house a few months back by the FBI, the fact that they took the unusual step to actually, you know, go through the door or, or, or pick the lock, go in, meant that they didn't think that they were probably going to get documents given over in good faith. And so that made it look like Manafort was the target. And so I don't think anyone was surprised when those indictments came out early on Monday morning. And then you saw Trump take a victory lap using those pre-created statements, the idea that, you know, what this happened years before Paul Manafort was part of my campaign, and you know what, there's no connection, no collusion, all caps, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, now everybody look over at Hillary Clinton. That was what we saw Monday morning, but then it was revealed, it was unveiled, that there was this lower-level campaign member, a foreign policy advisor that Trump himself said was an excellent guy in a Washington Post interview, uh, that was in fact working for the FBI as a proactive uh, as a proactive part of their campaign to get, or at least their investigation. In other words, this young guy was found to have lied to the FBI. He pled guilty to that, and he became proactive for them, which a lot of people are surmising meant that he was wired for at least three months. And who knows what he produced to get the deal that he got zero to six months? Who knows who he spoke to and tried to get conversations going? So if there's one thing that came out very clearly was that Mueller had more than people realized, that he runs a leak-free operation, which is almost unheard of. And then we saw silence from the Trump Twitter feed until just a few minutes ago this morning when he called this young guy a liar. Uh, but, I mean, really, there was, there was silence and one would think panic at the White House yesterday. 
David, the reaction of Papadopoulos was uh, was rather interesting as well. Uh, I think one of the White House staffers yesterday characterized uh, this guy as a, as a, a nobody, I think was the phrase that they used. Uh, he, as you mentioned, Laurie, he's young. He's only 30 years old. And they try to, to pass this off as a guy who is just a volunteer kind of hanging around the campaign. But I'm sure you have seen, I think most of the nation has now seen, uh, that picture that was published yesterday on CNN and uh, C- MSNBC of uh, Trump and Donald's and uh, Jeff Sessions and a number of other foreign policy advisors, and right staff back in the middle of them is George Papadopoulos involved in that meeting. So to suggest that this guy was a nobody and just a hanger on, I, th- I think is a bit of a stretch. Well, first of all, volunteer means absolutely nothing because Manafort was a volunteer and Bannon was a volunteer, and we know that they, in particular, were quite powerful in the campaign. So the volunteer thing is just a red herring. The other thing, too, that's important in this is that, you know, you don't get to sit in front of the would-be, well, the nominee, and in fact, you know, the would-be president, although at the time he was just he was just running for the job, but you don't get to sit in front of the candidate, the principal in a campaign, and a high-powered senator who becomes the attorney general, Jeff Sessions. You don't get that kind of access to the top tier unless you've got some kind of value, something to offer. So at very least, we know that Trump had had one of these meetings with this guy and that he referenced him almost in a bragging way off of a list to the Washington Post about who his foreign policy advisors were. So you've got that on the record. But the other thing, too, is that you have the emails, the emails where this this younger guy, this this advisor, was feeding up the campaign chain. He was saying, you know, they want us to go over to Russia. And, and the response back is, well, JT, Donald Trump, or Donald Trump's not going to go, but if you can do it, do it if it's feasible, right? Somebody lower level's got to go. So, I mean, there's these emails that actually show not only that there was attempts at collusion, or at least fishing by the Russians, and then this young aide going, or this young advisor going back and saying, you know, we should try to do this, we should try to set it up. But there's emails coming from higher up in the campaign saying, you know, if you could do this this trip, it would be feasible, but it can't be Donald Trump who goes. So this stuff is is pretty damaging. And while Manafort and all of the charges, the 12 counts against him, Bill, may well not have nothing to do with Trump directly, Certainly, we have something different with this younger staffer, and I think that's why they went even further in their talking points this morning, not just the fact that he was low-level or a volunteer, but one of the um, people who were out there trying to do the spin on this called him a coffee boy, uh, likened him to that kind of level. Uh, And, you know, that just goes to show you, I think, the level of panic, the fact that they are going to disparage him, the president's going to tweet out that this guy's a liar, uh, they're going to do whatever they can to discredit him, to discredit Mueller, to try to turn the guns back on the Hillary Clinton uranium stuff. But I don't think it's going to work because people understand emails. They can read. They know what they're seeing. Well, there's a paper trail here, and, and that's become evident. And uh, and we, have, again, need to underscore the fact that Papadopoulos was convicted of lying. Not, he had nothing to do with, there's no word of collusion, nothing to do with that. But now that he's he's been convicted and now that he's been working with Mueller, we do know this much, that he has admitted that, yeah, he was establishing the Russian connection between the Trump campaign and uh, somebody called the professor, who they say is a Russian uh, higher up, uh, nameless so far. But uh, you got to think that Robert Mueller knows who this individual is anyway, although that hasn't become public. Uh, last night uh, on, uh, God, I was flipping around to so many TV shows last night, it was hard to tell which one I was watching. Uh, but uh, but uh, Carter Page, who was also a Trump staffer, was being questioned. 
and uh, suggested, have you been included in the email chain that went from Papadopoulos to the higher-ups? And he says, I might have seen them from time to time. Well, you either did or you didn't. I mean, the, this, this, this false bravado that, well, I'm not so sure that they were really email chains, uh, is, is really them backtracking right now. And it, it's pretty obvious that they were caught off guard by what Papadopoulos did and, and maybe what he's been telling Mueller so far. It's hard to understand why Carter Page keeps going uh, on these shows, and that was MSNBC last night, because apparently he has a PhD. If you listen to the Washington Post interview with Trump, it's one of the reasons he was one of the advisors. And the only thing that I can uh, take from that is that all of these guys got involved in this campaign because access to power and celebrity and you know and so they can't help themselves perhaps you even saw it with one of trump's former advisors tweeting out so much when this came out on friday that he got kicked off twitter um, because he was going so aggressively against everyone who was reporting the news of the coming indictments i think that was roger stone correct me if i'm wrong but the point is is that these guys there's a bravado there's this sense of uh, almost trying to normalize it well everybody takes opposition research well everybody does this kind of thing well no big deal you know you know these guys are young who cares you know this kind of uh, as we saw jeff flake say so passionately from the well of the senate last week when he announced his retirement there's this there's this attempt or this constant almost lowering of the culture uh it's they're, they're trying to change the culture and, and in his case he didn't want to be a part of that anymore but this is what they're coming out with they're disparaging the investigation itself they're trying to attack Mueller. they're trying to they're going to go after anyone obviously who comes out and then comes after them or who turns for an fbi uh to work for the fbi they're going to attack and i think we're used to that but it's this idea that this is coming out of the president's office, you know. I mean, you remember the Nixon years better than I do. And, and Nixon would say there was rich hunts, and he did the State of the Union where he said that, you know, it's been a year of this investigation. It's going nowhere. Time to turn the page. But you didn't get a sense that there was going to be this kind of, you know, daily uh, overt attacks and things going on. And, and I think that that doesn't actually help them because people will probably look at that and say there's no loyalty coming out of Team Trump, and if they know anything, they'd be, I would think, inspired now to go to Mueller and say, hey, I, I want to cut a deal. This is, you know, if they're, if they're going to go after everyone uh, in the campaign, they're going to go after me at some point. So I want to I turn over, you know, state's witness or whatever the word is for it. So I don't think that these constant attacks are going to help them in this case. I don't think that Trump is facing an opponent like some Republican who's running for president or like maybe somebody else he was suing or involved in some lawsuit with in business. This is Mueller. This is a giant investigation with some of the best of the best. And they have a, a pretty broad mandate. And they're supported by another branch of government to make this happen. So I think that they might be over their head on this one. And some of the past tactics, like attacking the media and getting your pundits out there and going after these people on social media, I don't think it's going to work as well this time, though. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Curiouser and curiouser this gets. Uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks for this, Laura. Thank you. Good talking with you. So what's uh, what's the uh, the word in the Beltway now in the Washington area with the uh, revelations from yesterday? Uh, we're pleased to be joined now by Inez de la Catera, who is the Washington correspondent with Global News, uh, who's been watching this. Inez, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the reaction around the Beltway, uh, both in the Congress and, and in the streets of Washington uh, with the news yesterday. Uh, if people were waiting with these indictments to see a smoking gun, they didn't really see that, but there seems to be maybe, maybe a path towards uh, some more substantive uh, evidence going on here. What, what's, what was your read on that? 
Yeah, pretty crazy day. I think we were all surprised to find out about uh, George Papanopoulos, a, a name we hadn't really heard before, this kind of lower-level campaign staffer, former uh, Trump foreign policy advisor, uh, who we found out about yesterday had been in touch with a Kremlin-linked operative during the campaign uh, who had told him that he had incriminating information about Hillary, Hillary Clinton and her emails. Uh, and from there, Papanopoulos then offered to, uh, or got in touch with Trump, the Trump campaign, offering to set up a meeting with Russian leadership. We also know that the Trump campaign encouraged him to take meetings with Russian leadership. So I think that was the most explosive news in that it provides the clearest evidence yet of uh, someone within the Trump campaign uh, who is at least willing to uh, meet with Russians and possibly work with Russians. Um, so that, that you know, was very interesting. The, the Paul Manafort and Rick Gates indictments were, of course, very interesting, but um, we kind of expected those. We knew that indictments were coming, that arrests were going to be made. When it comes to Manafort and Gates, their indictments had to do mostly with their business dealings mm -hmm. abroad. Uh, that's not to say that it doesn't have to do with Russia. Ultimately, we'll follow the money and see where that leads. Um, but as of now, there doesn't seem to be a smoking gun there when it comes to Manafort and Gates. Except that you don't know what Manafort knows. And, and uh, you know, faced with what we're told many years in prison, uh, the guy's, what, 68, 69 years old. I mean, he may want to cut a deal and just say, look, you know, here's something I can give you. We don't know where that's going yet. But I guess it does raise some more questions, though, doesn't it, Inez, about, about maybe who else Mueller has talked to. I mean, when Papadopoulos comes out, I don't think anybody expected that announcement yesterday. And, and we know that he's been working now with the special investigator and their staff for some time now. Uh, I guess you people in the White House right now have to be wondering, well, who else has Mueller got under his wing right now that we don't know about? Right, exactly. Um, and we know that the president himself was surprised when this news about Papadopoulos came out. He, Papadopoulos was actually uh, arrested back in July and pled guilty back in July. And he's been working with investigators since then. We found out yesterday from court documents that uh, he's been, quote, proactively cooperating with investigators. Uh, so, you know, experts here kind of widely agree that that could mean that uh, Papadopoulos has been wearing a wire and possibly recording his conversations with uh, Trump administration officials, recording phone calls could also mean that he's just handed over emails or just been answering questions uh, that investigators have had. Uh, but reg regardless, he is cooperating. Um, and we, we also know from court documents that that is part of a uh, larger investigation. It's, you know, black uh, on white in the court documents there that this is part of a larger investigation. So, yeah, there, there is likely to be a lot more coming out of this. I remember when the news first broke over the weekend that uh, um, someone was going to be indicted and, and possibly arrested, uh, there was speculation that maybe this would be a smaller fish that Mueller was going after as part of a strategy to then catch bigger fish, and that certainly seems to be what's going on now. The reaction in uh, in the Congress uh, and on Capitol Hill, I found, was interesting, too. The, you, you've heard, obviously, in the Washington, the, the rumors that, that Trump may try to shut this thing down, cut the funding to Mueller's investigation, maybe even fire Mueller, not unlike what Nixon did with Archibald Cox. Uh, but some of the, the most harsh, uh, I guess, responses I've heard from that have actually come from Republicans, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, that said that uh, I think the, the phrase that Graham used was, there'll be hell to pay if Trump tries to do that. Yeah, they're starting to speak out, which is something I think a lot of people here in D.C. have been calling for, saying that, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike need to uh, say that they will take action if Mueller is fired. Uh, important to note that the White House did say yesterday that it doesn't plan to fire Mueller at this time. Uh, you had Kelly as well, uh, General Kelly, White House Chief of Staff, saying that, um, you know, they're going to try and let this play out. Uh, but it is a concern. It's something you mean uh, Trump fired James Comey, right? So it is a concern that he might, and, and he's so unpredictable that you 
you never know what could happen, what's going through his mind. We know that he's seething right now, that he was, you know, furious watching this unfold yesterday, that he expected Manafort and, and Gates to be indicted, but had no idea that this Papanopoulos thing was coming. Um, and he's been taking to Twitter to voice his frustration and trying to put distance between himself uh, and Manafort and, and Pap uh, Papanopoulos. So, you know, the unpredictable president, we'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, a lot of concern there that he, he may try and get rid of Mueller, even if the White House right now says that that's not part of the plan. Well, it uh, seems to be changing by the minute. We'll be watching for your reports later on on Global News Course, Global National at 6.30 tonight. Inez, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Thank you. Take care. Inez de la Catera, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, she and Jackson Prosco, who, of course, are down in the nation's capital in Washington, uh, certainly uh, running from place to place right now, trying to stay atop of this stuff. And uh, as soon as they give us uh, some of the more uh, prevalent details and uh, relevant details to what's going on, we'll certainly pass those on to you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This has been the summer of the rope rescue. Uh, well, you know, we've been covering stories like that. Now, if a lot of the focus, of course, has been on, on what's been going on at Albion Falls, but uh, let's remind ourselves that uh, there have been some concerns raised in uh, other areas, too, especially around Webster's and Tews Falls. Uh, and uh, most of these has fallen on the lap of the uh, the counselor for the area for Ward 14. That's Robert Persuda, uh, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about, uh, well, the latest problem that we'll get to in a second and some of the other ones, too. Rob, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Now, I might not sound like myself. I've got whatever's going around, the sore throat and the coughing, so... It's uh, it's yeah, it's out there. I got that. Well, we'll uh, just keep you for a few seconds here and bring you up to speed on this. Uh, uh, one of the great things about living in this area, of course, is we are the city of waterfalls. We have more waterfalls within the city limits than any other city in the world. We should be proud of that. But uh, we've got some people that don't seem to appreciate this and don't seem to respect some of the property. Now, this is not a new issue for you because you've had parking problems and trespassing problems that you've had to deal with. But talk to us about this latest problem involving this path. Well, the, the path, it's, it's not a Bruce Trail. It's a trail between a trail on its own between Webster and Two Falls. And uh, there was people encroaching on the landowners at the end of uh, Falls View. And that's where the trail went through and coming up to their house and that. And there was back and forth that uh, we had worked with the, with the uh, landowners as the conservation, I'm saying, because I'm on the chair of the Conservation Authority, too, yeah. uh, wearing two hats here. Worked back and forth, but it's, uh, it's understandable what's happening there. Um, and it's unfortunate that social media kind of brings the people to see what we have, the, the great uh, jewels we have out there. So what's gone through, they're trying to work back and forth, the conservation staff, with the residents uh, to get a trail established again. It was closed off in September of 2016. And Let me, let me ask you just on that point, who closed it off? Well, there's conflicting reports, but uh, the landowners are the ones that closed it off. Okay. They fenced it off. They closed it off. Not the Conservation Authority. So there seems to be two or three sides to the story that's going around. Um, so it was closed off, and then the people who would go to either Webster, Two Falls, you had to walk along Harvest Road, Short Road, and then Falls View. And uh, they're very narrow roads, Short Road and Harvest Road. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, very narrow roads, and in some places it's tight. It's, it's very tight to get one, one and a half cars through. So it's fairly dangerous. No sidewalks. There never will be sidewalks there because nobody's going to be putting them in. There's just no way. So there's rumors that we're going to, the city's going to expropriate land for sidewalks. That's not going to happen. Um, so it's the amount of people that's walking the dangerous roads and the linkage there back and forth. I, the lawyers negotiate. And I can't say too much, and I don't know too much. It's left in the lawyers' hands 
between the residents there and the conservation lawyers, their expropriation lawyers, and they're working working on some type of agreement. Hopefully they can come up with something. We don't know what it's going to be. Uh, we may have an update in camera again the, this Thursday night at the board meeting. All right. And and here's just so we understand where, where both sides are coming from right now. You've got the quote-unquote public that are saying, look at, you know, these are public waterfalls. We want to enjoy the waterfalls. There's one right close to the other one there, and there is a path that's been going there. Now, then you've got the residents, and this is private property. I mean, it's essential that other people understand what's going on here. Uh, the point, the, 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 the traveling from point A to point B is through private property. It's not publicly owned land at this stage. Now, this has been going on for years. Uh, ha- what about the people that have owned these places, Rob? I, I mean, have have they been complaining about this before? Because clearly they seem to to allow this, uh, and maybe that's too strong a word. I'm going to talk to it to Mr. Osborne in a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. But they seem to have allowed this for years. Was there a breaking point for them? As far, far as I know, over all the years, it was allowed to come through the private properties. Uh, the two fellows that bought 31 Falls View and, and rebuilt it, and made it, it's really, you can actually find it on the website, it's out there, their house. It's really a really nice house, open windows and everything, and it's a draw to the people who are walking on the, on the trail. And for some reason, they have to come up to the house and look in, and um, I, there was talk of people who actually came into the house, had to get security to get them out. The house is a draw for some reason for people, and that's part of the problem, too. And, and, and it's a beautiful house, no, don't get me wrong here, did a good job. But previous to that, the trail was there, and there was, in my time on the conservation, I never heard of any problems. So, but somebody obviously fenced this thing off, and and now people are upset about this. Uh, lawyers are involved in this now. The story that we have heard, and and you can confirm this or deny it, uh, mm-hmm. or or give it the the thumbs down, is yeah. is that they are going to buy this? They're going to expropriate this land from these private these these citizens and simply say we're going to make a path here, and you guys are going to have to live with that. Is is that what your understanding is? Well, that's the conservation is moving forward to expropriate the parcel, and it's 387 square feet at the uh, bottom southeast corner of their lot to get what the size of two and a half car spark parking spaces. But the fact is, it's it's in front of their house. That's what the issue is for uh, for the residents there. But the expropriation at this point in time has been filed. The paperwork has been filed, and the lawyers are now talking about it. And that's is that on the table, or has that already been decided? I mean, you you do sit on the conservation authority as well, as you mentioned, the city council. So, so, so thing? yeah, yeah, it was officially in the put in the newspapers as in the Spectator. They got a, a registered letter, so it's in process. And what? And okay, so. You, <laughs> Like I say, you're wearing two hats here, but as a member of the Conservation Authority, you may think that's a good idea. As a city councilor representing uh, the area around Greensville, including those houses, uh, what's your read on that? Because I'm sure you're going to get some pushback on this. Well, I'm getting pushback on it. You know, I I support my residents, and I'm hoping that the board made a decision to, uh, in camera, to go ahead and expropriate, and I'm hoping come to some resolution. I am working with uh, the conservation staff will be brought back up at the board meeting, but we got to wait and see what the lawyers have discussed first, Bill. I can't say much more than that, and I don't know what they've been discussing. Is this a problem that ebbs and flows? I mean, we are heading into the winter season right now. Are there still people that uh, that visit the falls on a regular basis, even during the colder months? Yeah, they still come out and go hiking and walking through there. It's, it's beautiful in the winter, too. The, the falls and when the ice over, it is beautiful. So this is, uh, this is a problem that's not going to go away. No, it's not going to go away. More and more people come down there. We have the parking issues, which we've kind of uh, worked out with the shuttle. The shuttle, even though some people didn't think it was going to work too good, it uh, worked pretty good this year. 
Uh, we didn't have as much issues with parking in uh, Greensville and blocking off streets. So uh, the board's going to be reviewing the uh, shuttle service through the winter and uh, see how well it worked, what, what didn't work, and uh, come up maybe with some new plans for next year. But the, the shuttle will continue. Is this being characterized as a, as a, as a convenience issue for the, uh, for the tourists or for those that want to go between the, the two waterfalls, Robert? Or is, it, is this, in your mind, a, a public safety issue because of the, the narrow roads and the possibility of somebody getting hurt? Bill, I think it's a combination of both. But the, the public safety is the major one, but it's also not only the visitors' public safety, but the, the residents there, too. And, um, yeah, people, it's, it's a link to save them walking around. But they can walk, but... I don't know. There's a couple options they can be looking at the lawyers. Uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss those. But there have been discussions about alternatives. Yes, there has been. Uh, interesting that the, the Conservation Authority has adopted this one instead. Uh, Robert, I know you've got to get back. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for this. Certainly we'll follow up on this after the meeting on Thursday. Hopefully we can talk again, and hopefully your voice will be a little better. Okay. All right, Bill. Thank you very much. Uh, Robert Pursuit, of course, the uh, counselor for Ward 14. Uh, out around the Greensville area. Mark Osborne is a, a member of Preserve and Protect Webster's and Two's Falls, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us his perspective on this. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Yes, no problem at all. Uh, you just heard from Councillor Pursuta explaining what uh, the scenario was from his perspective uh, as both a member of the Conservation Authority and, of course, as the counselor for that area. Uh, give us your read and, and, uh, and what you guys are looking for here is in the way of a solution to this problem. Well, I guess we're I guess we're talking about the expropriation issue. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, there are there is another big issue that that, uh, that Greensville is going to have to deal with as well. Um, but on the expropriation issue, it's it's really this is sort of the straw that broke the camel's back um, because there's been a number of issues up here that that people are really angered over and we're we're really fed up with with the situation uh, with the relationship with the Hamilton Conservation Authority. Um, we feel. Uh, the community feels that we're being, you know, we're being bullied uh, by them, um, and we don't have a say um, in things that affect our community, um, and that, that's the reason why we're having a protest Thursday evening at the Hamilton Conservation Authority headquarters. Um, but in terms of the expropriation, I mean, the, you know, the landowners, and we've met with those landowners. Uh, you know, they're very, they're very, they're super people, and they're. You know, they want people to visit the area. Uh, you know, they wanted to keep that trail open, uh, which is the, the one that runs along the edge of the escarpment. Um, you should hopefully have a map in front of you showing the, uh, showing the two routes. Um, and, you know, but to run, you know, to run a trail right in front of their home, uh, right, you know, 20 feet in front of their windows is, is just unacceptable. Um, and it's just, it's just caused an uproar in this community. Well, the other story I've heard, and, and this actually goes back some time to when there were still some complaints uh, before the Conservation Authority got uh, proactively involved in this, uh, about some rather lewd behavior along the trail from time to time, too. And I don't know if I was living in those houses. I want to look out my front window and see some of that stuff. Well, that's what's been going on. I mean, they've had, uh, there's been uh, folks having sex there. Uh, there have been people who have been naked. Uh, you know, and the typical stuff that all of Greensville residents endure, which is, you know, urinating and defecating on lawns, uh, having picnics on their lawns, um, you know, traffic congestion, the whole, you know, the whole nine yards. And, uh, you know, the, I must say the Conservation Authority is very good at managing things like wetlands and things like that. But when it comes to managing 
their parks within our community. Uh, we rate them very poorly on that. Um, and I don't know where the relationship from this point is going forward. Uh, I, we, we do, you know, we just don't know. And the other, you know, the other big issue up here now is, is the fact that the, the, you know, the property that was used for the shuttle bus service in Greensville, uh, the city has now issued an order uh, against that location for licensing and zoning infractions. So as of October 30th, they had to shut that operation down. So this is like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Well, and I understand the conservation authority and the city are two different entities. I get that, but they're supposed to be working cooperatively here. Well, yeah, and the HCA, uh, you know, has always told us that uh, you know they work closely with the city, and you know you have city councilors who are on the HCA board, and knowing the heightened awareness of what's happening in Greensville, you would have thought, or at least if I was, you know, if I was a board member, I would have said, hey, wait a second, where are we going to send these buses? Uh, have we checked the, you know, have we checked the licensing and zoning requirements for that area to make sure we get it right? Apparently not. Um, <laughs> so we have city councilors who, you know, voted in favor of this, and the next minute we have, you know, we have their own city personnel issuing bylaw orders against the location. I mean, it just, it just boggles, it boggles the mind. It really does. And like you say, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And, and you know what? As uh, as a citizen of, uh, I mean, I grew up here. I, I was born and raised here. I love this yeah. community. I love the waterfalls. I used to go to Webster's all the time when I was a kid. Oh sure. Uh, and but but when I hear stories about people that are abusing this, uh, like they have you know jumping over ropes and rope yeah. rescues yeah. and the number of things that have gone on, and people yeah. that are traveling over private property, yeah. uh, it's it's a it's a, I was going to say it's a handful of people. You know, that are giving everybody a bad name. But I also have a great deal of concern and empathy, I think, for the, the, the owners. I mean, you know, I know people that live in Greensville. Some f- good friends of mine live up in that area, and they move there because it's a pristine, unique little community within the, the greater Hamilton-Dundas community. I get that. Absolutely. And I don't want people trampling all over my front lawn all the time. No, and that's part of the problem. And we've, you know, we, last year, we actually presented, uh, we actually presented, uh, we did a PowerPoint presentation to the board uh, showing what you know we'd like to see happen, and uh, we basically wanted to see the Hamilton Conservation Area use the Christie's Lake uh, area as a as a hub for any shuttle operation, and they've absolutely refused to do that. And we've recognized that they do have some large events there from time to time, and we've proposed to them that they you know that people who want to visit the Webster's Falls area. Uh, make a booking. Um, you know there are a lot of there are a lot of places around the world where you have to book in order to enter the park. You know you can't just show up one day, um, and you know implement a third-party booking system where people can book in advance. That way, you know how many buses are coming, or sorry, how many visitors are coming, how many buses you may need, and and you know Christie Lake has a lot of amenities. I mean they have you can rent a paddle boat. Oh sure, yeah. News. They got concessions. You can swim. You have a barbecue. You can take your dog, and if you're am- ambitious, you can walk the trail system from there into Webster's Falls um, through what's called the Spencer Adventure. It's about a 20, 25 minute walk. Um, I mean, we presented all these options, and you know, during the board meeting, we didn't receive any comments or any or any questions about our proposal. It was just mind boggling. And, you know, the community has tried again and again and again to get us involved in their decision-making process because it, it involves us. They manage these parks within our, you know, within our community, and we feel like we're shut out completely. 
Well, what are you going to do about uh, – we just got a couple of minutes left here. The, the, the more pressing need, I guess, right now, of course, is what this proposed expropriation right now. Right. Uh, Councilor Pursuta was rather reticent to talk about options right now, and, and elected officials get a little skittish when it comes to possible legal action. I get that. But but from your standpoint, though, Mark, I mean, is there a plan B? Or is there something else that, that could be a compromise here that could still allow for people to, to see these fabulous facilities? At the same time, uh, granting the, the, the privacy and, and the property rights of the people that live there? Well, I know the landowners are more than, are more than willing to allow people to, uh, to use the old trail that's directly on the edge of the escarpment. Uh, that's been there for, for a long time. Um, in our view, it's been poorly managed. Uh, they've had the Bruce Trail attempt to do, uh, you know, some crowd control on it one, you know, at one point in time. They had a security guard there, and he never showed up at one time. And you know, it, it's been a it's been a real mishmash of a real mishmash of stuff. We've suggested that the HCA post a staff member, a uniform staff member, on that trail on weekends, uh, because I understand they have the authority to issue provincial offenses tickets. Uh, they don't exercise that, from what I understand, but they can do that, uh, or certain personnel can do that, and you know they can always train them to do it, um, and sort of clamp down and make sure that you know the, you know the you know the the numbers are where they need to be, because we can't we can't just not continue over the next few years without trying to control the numbers into this area, and if we can control the numbers that come in. Uh, you know, the, you know, the trail system is going to take less of a beating. Uh, you know, the homeowner is going to see less people. Um, so there are lots of options available to the community, but we want to be part of these discussions. And we think the expropriation is, is heavy-handed. Uh, they've said that the, uh, they're only expropriating a small sliver of it, but the fact of the matter is that there's a road allowance in there. Um, <laughs> under the forest floor, if you will, there's no physical road there. But there's, uh, I, you, you have the map, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I've seen the map. I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. And again, we're getting into some of the legalese in this. Sure. But expropriation is, uh, well, some would consider it a heavy-handed process. Uh, did, did they offer to buy the land? Uh, the Conservation Authority? Yeah. I don't know the history of that. You'd have to ask. That's, that's, it's an interesting point. I'd like to get the answer to that as, as to whether they just went from, well, you know, okay, you guys are ticked off. Okay, we're going to take the land away from you, too. Well, let's try to find a financial settlement. I, I don't sure. see, and I haven't read anything about that, which one makes me wonder whether or not that's going to happen. Listen, in the, in the 20 seconds i got left, uh, sure. the meeting is Thursday at the Conservation Authority. You will be there. Your organization will be there as well. Do you have uh, status at this meeting? Are you going to be able to address these guys? No, we're basically, uh, we're not a delegation. We're okay. basically going to be protesting outside the property lines um, and uh, letting the Conservation Authority know that we're fed up. And, you know, they've, you know, they've, you know, they've, they've got us to a point now where we're boxed in and we're going to, we're going to start really fighting back. So it's, it's um, you know, and it's a shame that we have to do this because we want, you know, we want the Conservation Authority to, you know, we all want to be in a win-win situation. Absolutely, I get and, that. Uh, yeah, and we want them. You know, we want them to earn revenue, uh, but you know, and we've suggested ways to do that. Uh, you know, you know, to increase that possibility. Um, but for whatever reason, the authorities are. You know, the authority is is um, not listening to us. And a matter of fact, there is. Well, they're a, gonna they're gonna know you're there on Thursday, Mark. Yeah, stay in touch with us, will you, and let us know how this plays out. 
Will do. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Mark Osborne, of course, with Preserve and Protect Webster's in Two Falls. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The leader of the Ontario NDP Party is calling for a broad inquiry into long-term care system. This is not the first time that Andrea Horvath has made this call, but given some of the scenarios that we've heard in the last little while about abuses of patients, abuses of staff in some cases, and certainly some concerns about safety and about service and uh, the kind of care that's being delivered. Uh, many are wondering why the province seems to be moving so slowly. To talk about this, Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Andrea, good morning. How are you today? I'm well, thanks, Bill. How are you? Great. Listen, I know I'm pulling you out of a meeting. I appreciate that. But let's let's talk about this. This is important stuff. We thought, in the wake of, of the trial, of course, that occurred in Woodstock with Elizabeth Wetlaufer, that, uh, that the government would have moved on this, and, and there was some talk at that time of an inquiry, but to, to our knowledge, nothing's happened so far, has it? Well, actually, there, there is an inquiry, be, inquiry underway right now, but it's... Yeah, it's but that's into that effort, that's into that exactly. incident, not to the broader qu- question here. Exactly. It's, it's scoped to, uh, to really focus on what may or may not have contributed uh, to this nurse being able to, to uh, undertake the, these heinous crimes, right? But as you said, Bill, I mean, it's obvious that we have a huge systemic uh, problem with our long-term care system, and, and this is the opportunity for the government to take an honest look at what's happening and broaden that inquiry scope so that it deals with you know the entire uh, system uh, because the you know the, the the concerns the complaints frankly the 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 worries that people have about their lo- loved ones in long term care are are everywhere i mean i was in ottawa yesterday i've been i was did a round table in hamilton i've been all over this province and you know what the specifics are different cuz everyone's different and every community is different uh, but uh, the 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 commonalities around the complaints and the concerns and the you know horrendous situations that people are facing in long term care it's just it's not acceptable. These are our loved ones. These are the people that have built this province. And to, to kind of leave them in this horrifying situation in long-term care where, where they're not getting the, the dignity and the quality of care uh, that they deserve, in fact, they're deteriorating and in some cases, as you said, are facing either violence on them or in some cases, patient-on-patient violence, and some cases, you know, violence uh, against staff. I mean, it's it's a it's a system that's in absolute uh, disarray, and it's those poor folks that suffer and their loved ones who literally are wringing their hands day in and day out with worry and fear uh, as to what they're going to find next when they go visit, you know, their spouse or their grandma or their aunt in long-term care. Well, you've heard them as you've gone along the province, and I know other MPPs have as well, and that's why I'm I'm, I'm befuddled that the province hasn't moved faster on, on doing something in a more broad-based ta- fashion like this. And and we could, we could focus, we could talk about the next 15 minutes about about violence uh, in, in some of these facilities, and it's terrible when it happens, and, and obviously Obviously, the Wetlaufer case was, was maybe the, the worst-case scenario. But, I mean, we had a death here at St. Joseph's Villa just a few months ago, as you know, uh, where somebody was attacked by a, a patient, was attacked by another patient, uh, and ended up dying as a result of the injuries that they sustained during that. It took a few months later. But, I mean, it's, it, it's a tragic situation. We talked to that family about the loss. And, and at that time, we raised questions. And, and yes, you're right. They, they do micro-investigations into this and say, well, how did this incident happen? But why not a discussion and, and a broader sense about what's going on province-wide? 
Absolutely, I agree with you. I mean, why not a discussion about uh, do we have appropriate staffing levels? Do we have appropriate, uh, you know, kind of regulations and accountability around staffing levels? I don't know how many times I've been uh, to these roundtables, and literally every single time the complaint is there not uh, there aren't enough staff. When staff call in sick, they're not replaced. Uh, so there, so the the people that are left are running around trying to meet the needs of of uh, more and more residents. Uh, I've, I've I've talked to registered nurses and PSWs. Who, who tell me they literally leave their shifts in tears because they feel so badly about the fact that they can't, they can't physically you know, provide the kind of care they know people deserve. Uh, it's really, really bad, Bill. I mean, the, the, the tragic situation you talked about that happened in, uh, in the Dundas home, uh, it was one, but the, the, the Hamilton families that came to our, our roundtable that we held at the Spectator Building was, I mean, it was, honest, it was nothing less than, uh, than disgraceful hearing those stories. And uh, my heart goes out to every single one of those families, everything from, you know, from people who's, uh, you know, yesterday in Ottawa, there was a woman who's, who's, who's a mother has had bed, bed sores that were so bad that they went right through to the bone, right through the, through the bone. I mean, can you imagine that? That's a, that's, nobody should deal with that kind of pain and that kind of neglect. It's terrible. Here's, and, and these are human stories and these are tragic stories when we hear these. Uh, and and uh, you're right, I hear the same problems about staffing and about d- resources and things that are available. But I guess what exacerbates this, though, Andrea, is the fact that we know that as a population, we're getting older, we're living longer, and, and we all know that, that long-term care facilities are going to be a major part of our health care system going forward, and we don't even have enough beds now. So, I mean, yeah. this is not just a s- discussion about violence. I mean, that, need, that obviously needs to happen. I get that. But what about the idea that we don't have enough beds? What about the idea that we don't have enough long-term care facilities? What about the idea that there are too many people in hospitals right now that should be in long-term care facilities, but there's no beds for them? No, you're absolutely right. You know, and this after 14 years, this government has done nothing to deal with this. I mean, the demographic, uh, you know, shift is upon us. I mean, right now there are 32,000 people province-wide that are on the wait list for long-term care. And here's a number for you. In less than three years, and by 2020, that number is going to more than double. There will be, the projections are, there will be more than 70,000, close to 75,000 people waiting for long-term care in 2020. That's not very long from now. And it's, 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 unbelievable it's just unbelievable that the government has not taken this seriously and and stepped up to the plate so you're right we the, the inquiry needs to deal with absolutely what's wrong with our system with the idea with the idea to fix it but also acknowledging that we got to get it right because we have to expand that system and yes we are, we're going to have to expand home care as well and and try to provide other uh, solutions uh, supportive housing more supportive housing for seniors and those kinds of things but let's face it the, you know the, the crunch is upon us there's no time anymore uh, in terms of waiting for this stuff to happen. And you know, just in, in terms of the broader inquiry that we're trying to force the government to do, I don't know if you know, but we've made the commitment. When we form government next year, uh, within 100 days, we will expand that inquiry to take in all of the concerns that people have on, uh, in terms of our long-term care system. But more importantly than that, or, or maybe just as importantly, instead of having an inquiry that then waits until the final recommendations come forward, uh, we will take a find-and-fix approach. In other words, as 
as the inquiry rolls forward and, and we find, you know, what the, what the specific problems are and, and what some of the thinking is around how to address those problems, we're going to start fixing them right away because nobody, nobody should be in that situation now and nobody should be worried about, you know, what they're going to find when they go to visit their loved one uh, in, in the long-term care centre tomorrow. Well, and those that, have, those that have family members and loved ones in those facilities, I mean, tell us their stories, and I know you've heard some of them too. And it, it's about level of care. And, and you know, it's about the food. It's about, you know, mm-hmm. it, let's face it, people that are in those facilities, some of them bedridden, uh, they need a higher level of care than, uh, than you might even need in a hospital because of the certain needs that are going on. And, and staffing seems to be an issue. I mean, they, ris- you know, they ring the buzzer, they ring the buzzer, there's nobody available to take their call because they're busy looking after somebody else. Yeah. Now, and you wouldn't have to start from square one on this because I know, I know the Auditor General has done some reports on this, but I mean, that's really from the financial standpoint about dollars and cents. And I know that some newspapers, including the Toronto Star, have done some investigative reporting on this. So there's a body of work that's out there right now that already points to some of the shortcomings, uh, including, for instance, how little they actually spend on food for the, for uh-huh. the, the residents of these places. Uh, so these are easily addressed. I mean, it's not as if they have to start all over and say, okay, where do we begin? Somebody's already done a lot of the legwork for them here. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, we have a private member's bill coming uh, this week that uh, is demanding that we set a standard of a minimum of four hours of hands-on care for each and every resident. And, and with that standard in place, it would force uh, the uh, hiring of more staff. It would force the government uh, to resource these facilities uh, more uh, like, more uh, robustly. I mean, and this is, this is what it comes down to. I mean, the, every time, every thing that we're hearing is that it comes down to resourcing. And yes, there are issues around, uh, you know, around accountability and around regulation and all of those things. But these, these homes, you know, the, the, the acuity of patients in these homes has changed drastically in the last decade. But the, but the resourcing hasn't. And the acknowledgement that there's, you know, that people are coming in with, you know, a number of different, uh, a number of different ailments or a number of different conditions, uh, it's, it's not like it was 10 years ago. And so we, we, have, to, we have to recognize that and, and fund these facilities appropriately. There's an, and also there's a debate around um, whether or not these facilities should be uh, operated in a, in, a, in a profit model or if it should be not-for-profit and public through municipal uh, delivery. I mean, these are big questions that we need to answer. Do we, do we want folks to be, you know, turning a profit off the, off the backs of, uh, of our most vulnerable seniors who, who really deserve to have all of the, the you know, public resources uh, uh, aimed at their care and not in some private company's, you know, bottom line, right? I mean, it's, it's, these are big questions, and, and we, need to, uh, we need to tackle them, and that's why the broader public inquiry is the right way to go. Well, what about cost? Uh, you know, I remember the Toronto Star uh, story that was out a couple of months ago uh, that indicated that the cost of, of, of long-term care beds is about $5,000 a month in the GTA. Now, I understand in different parts of the province it may be a little less than that, but it's still a significant amount of money. It actually had one of our listeners uh, suggesting, that, Andrea, that it's actually cheaper to go on a cruise than it is to go into a long-term care facility. So it's maybe we should just put them all on a boat. Uh, you oh. know, and, uh, The food's better, the care's better, and it's cheaper. I mean, that, that's how ridiculous this process is right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, there's, and so these are the things that we need to dig into. I mean, the, the other thing to remember, though, is that when you look at the alternative level of care patients that are in hospitals right now, uh, it costs 
on average, I mean, just for a, a, a kind of a regular patient, it costs on average $1,200 a day to keep someone in hospital. In long-term care, that's reduced significantly. Uh, some estimates are about $200 a day. Uh, home care is about $60 a day. And so if we are only looking at numbers, I mean, those things tell a story, too, uh, about how we need to, you know, make, make sure we're investing uh, in, in, you know, obviously appropriate care, but acknowledging that by taking, uh, you know, taking the plunge and, and, and providing more facilities and better care in long-term care, and better care because, don't forget, as these people have these incidents that occur in long-term care, whether it's bed sores that, that eat away people's bodies to, down to the bone, whether it's urinary tract infections that go septic, and people have actually died from that in our long-term care system. Can you believe that? People dying from a, uh, a, 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 a what do you call it? A, a UT, right, a, a urinary tract infection. That's, oh, that's horrifying. But those folks, once they become, you know, that bad in long-term care, they get sent to the hospital. So, so why aren't we just providing the care that they need to prevent them from then being sent over to the hospital? Instead of, you know, instead of sending them to a $1,200 a day hospital, we should, you know, provide them the care they need in a, you know, a $600 a day or $500 a day or $300 a day system instead of a $200 a day system that's not meeting their needs. Well, you've raised this in the legislature. I mean, what kind of response is the government giving? I mean, they surely can't be saying, well, the system's fine the way it is. Well, I mean, what what they're saying is uh, that uh, they're sticking to the wet law for inquiry as it is, and uh, they're, you know, they continue to say that that's all that's needed is this uh, this particular inquiry to, um, you know, to deal with not only the circumstances of the wet law for murders, but other similar incidents that may occur. Well, there are so many other incidents that are not similar to a nurse murdering people, that you know, that's what the focus needs to be, all of the other incidents that are occurring in long-term care. So they're refusing, you know what they're doing, they're refusing to take the hard look that the people of this province deserve. They're refusing to, to you know, take that hard look in the mirror, and I don't mean in the mirror for them as people, but figuratively as a government, um, and, and, and say, yes, this, this system is failing people, and we need to get to the bottom of, uh, of you know, how we can turn that around. Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP Party. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Andrea. Really appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. You, Bill. It's an important subject. I appreciate it. Take you care. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.